Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Every Wednesday night, come listen to The Land of Aru, a show all about the award-winning high fantasy audio series Carcerum. Join Anthony Corona in listening to an episode of Carcerum with 360-degree sound design, a completely original score, and find yourself in the middle of an adventure filled with monsters, sword fights, and magic. After the episode, listen as Anthony interviews cast and crew members about their careers and the amazing process of Carcerum. That's The Land of Aru every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific on ACB Media Stream 3. Presented on ACB Media 3 in association with Shane Salt Productions and Sunday Edition. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony Corona. Every week here on ACB Media 1, that's American Council of the Blind, Media 1, and soon after on all your major podcast catchers. Each week, we'll dive into the news, human interest, and discussions about the issues surrounding all of us in and out of the American Council of the Blind community. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Sunday Edition. Um, This is not Anthony, (laughs) in case any of you had any doubt. My name is Sheila Young, and I am very honored to be here today, not in place of Anthony, but because I was asked to do this, and this was going to be a full two hours. Um, I would like to first thank Byron for being here and doing our ACB media stream. Absolutely. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. And Belinda is our connector to Zoom. And I mean, to Clubhouse and our host. So, Belinda, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. And how about um, our moderator? How about it? (laughs) How about you, Lucy? How are you? (laughs) I'm great, Sheila. Thank you so much for moderating in Clubhouse. Well, you bet. (laughs) So welcome to everybody. Today, we're going to focus on two different things. First hour is going to be dedicated to Randolph Shepard, Vendors of America. But first, I'd like to introduce Cassandra Jesse, who is a member of our ACB membership committee, and she's going to give a short uh, overview of what's coming up this week. Cassandra, are you there? Yes, Sheila. Good afternoon. Again, as Sheila said, my name is Cassandra Jesse, and I'm a part of a team of the membership committee of ACB. And this week, we will be focusing on all of the different um, affiliates and special interest groups that are around ACB. So I would say check your daily schedule every day because who knows, there may be one affiliate that you want to join. It's every night at nine o'clock. I know that's a little late for some of us, but when you're talking about advocacy, 
nine o'clock to me is early. Thank you, Sheila, and have a good day and a good meeting. Thank you, Cassandra. I would also um, like to give everybody a preview of our second hour today. We're going to be going to the dogs, literally going to the dogs. So anyway, I um, do want to thank everybody for taking part in today's meeting. So our first hour is going to be dedicated to Randolph Shepard Vendors of America. And I am very honored to have Karen Blachowicz from New York, Scott Egan, who is from Minnesota, who happens to be the president of RSVA, and Randolph Crosby, who is from Florida, and he is also a member of RSVA. So good afternoon, everybody. How are you? Great. Hello. So, hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my first question to all of you is how long have you been in vending and how did you get into vending? So let's start ladies first. Karen. Oh, well, thank you, Sheila. I feel so special. Um, I came into the Randolph Shepard program in New York in 2009. So that would be, if I can do my math, 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> and what made you get into vending? You know, I had, I had a great career before in accounting, but um, my eyesight changed, got much worse, and the accounting programs were not accessible at the time. So I needed a very quick career change. And um, my, my father was actually a vendor long, long time ago. So it's something I kind of grew up around and I, I had an interest in it. And turns out it was like one of the best moves I could have made for myself and my family. And now I have an 18 year old son coming into the program currently in training. So he will be third generation of Randolph Shepard in New York. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Scott, how about you? Oh, well, <laughs> this made me stop and do some math. <laughs> it's getting harder and harder all the time because uh, I've been at this a while. Uh, I started uh, my career in, the, in our BEP here in Minnesota uh, back in 1986. Um, I had a small business actually in my hometown. And uh, I was there for 10 years, um, really enjoyed learning. And uh, the, the whole facet of vending machines fascinated me. I, I knew about the program from the time I was a kid. And I always knew that that might be somewhere I would like to be. And fortunately, it did work out that I did end up there. Um, so I was in Fergus Falls for 10 years, had a college and a, uh, well, they called it a regional treatment center in those days. Um, then I moved on to Moorhead, Minnesota, where I had uh, two colleges. I had a four-year university. I had a two-year uh, community and technical college, and I had a rest area. And I was there for about 20 years. And then the opportunity came to me to come down here to the Twin Cities. And uh, there was an opening in a prison and um, fascinating work. I just, I had had the opportunity to take a peek at that um, before I decided to come down. And it was just so intriguing to me. It was something very different um, than anything else I had done, but in some ways it was the same. Uh, there's still customers and uh, you wanna do your best for your customers. 
So I've been here in the city since uh, 2014. Uh, my business has expanded many times over. I have three prisons currently. Um, I have a community technical college and I have a number of state buildings uh, throughout the area. So yeah, that's, that's a quick snapshot of uh, my life here in Minnesota. Wow. Phew. <laughs> Three prisons. That's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and Randall, Randall, yes. tell us about you. How long have you been Thank in the you. program and what got you into it? Thank you, Sheila, for having me here today. I was excited. Glad to share my story always. I kind of can do easy math. Like Scott mentioned, I started almost uh, just a couple of years after Scott, actually, but I started in 90. So it's kind of easy math. So 32 years for me. I had retinitis pigmentosa. I was born with that condition, but I had normal sight until I was 27 years old. It really wasn't a factor for me other than just some, some night blindness, but I worked around that. At the age of 27, I'd been working for Marriott Hotels in Marco Island, Florida for about nine years in the purchasing department. My wife of nine years by that point had been working as a cook under the chefs in the Marriott Hotel. And I became legally blind and I had no clue what to do. So I did the obvious thing. I went home and sat down on my sofa and said, I'm blind. I can't do anything at 27 years of age. A year and a half later, my purchasing agent boss at the Marriott calls me. He kept in touch a little with me. He says, I, I'm with our salesman from U.S. Foods and he's telling me, he sells to these people who are blind in restaurants, cafeterias, snack bars. I told him, you got to be crazy. Blind people can't operate businesses. That's what I told him. I didn't know. He gave me the phone number. I called the counselor and the rest is history, I like to say. But in 90, I went into my first snack bar operation in Naples, Florida and was there for eight years. My wife immediately came to work for me. Little did we know we were training for this because I was in purchasing and she was in the kitchen. So we were kind of a good fit for eight years in Naples at a Votech school, left there to go to Kennedy Space Center for 14 years and ran one of the several cafeterias there on the base. Ours was in the headquarters building. And then when they canceled the shuttle missions, I found myself moving to Denver, Colorado. I actually went into the BEP in Colorado for two years. Great experience. Gave me a whole new perspective being in another state. Moved back to Florida after two years. Decided I liked the Florida sunshine and our BEP program too. So came back uh, into a cafeteria in Tallahassee for four years, then a rest area for one year, then moved to the rest area I'm in now in St. Augustine, Florida. I think I got it all in there. Wow. I can't believe you're in Florida and I've never met you. <laughs> How about that? Hey, Florida's maybe, a big state. Maybe yeah. one day. Maybe one day. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we thank will. you so much. All right. I am going to just throw out a couple questions and you guys take it in the order you want to take it. My first question, for those of you that don't know, I was a vendor in Mississippi and certified vendor. I had gone through the program, the training, and it's very intense training to become a vendor. And I was certified. I moved to Florida and was not able to continue being a vendor. So 
Tell everybody that's listening what's involved in your training process. Where, where were you trained and, and how in-depth is the training? I'll, I'll start, Sheila. Okay. So what people do have to understand is although Randolph Shepard is a federal program, each state has its own training program. And they're very, very different from state to state. Um, here in New York, um, we have to go through some online training first and then an on-site. So you go work with another manager, um, you know, for anywhere from six to 12 weeks, depending on how fast you progress. Then we have to take a food service certification, which is called SERPSAFE. Um, and then as long as we pass everything and we look like we know what we're doing, we get our license. It's not that complicated here in New York. All right, Scott or Randall? Go ahead, Scott. Uh, I would say our, our program has evolved. So <laughs> remembering I'm, I'm the most senior of the three, I can speak <laughs> very briefly about my training and certainly it's evolved uh, quite a bit since I entered into the program, but uh, in 1985, 86, we, we had a trainer on site. So uh, I, I was living in uh, West Central Minnesota. And um, so I had to come down to the Twin Cities. I was down here for, actually the training is typically, at that time was typically about three months with a trainer and they would go through uh, how to do your books. And repair equipment and those kinds of things and it was yeah usually a three-month course and um, I had already had a stand that was waiting for me as soon as I finished training so I, I got the really short course I worked really hard and uh, was done in six weeks and back in my hometown running my business um, which was kind of almost unheard of in those days um, now uh, what Karen was talking about sounds very similar to our program. Uh, you know, uh, folks would come in and job shadow someone for a few days, then they would do some online training, and then they would probably work with another um, operator in a, uh, you know, in a business for a, a brief period of time to see if they actually could run a business. And uh, if everything went well, they would then be licensed and ready to take on their own business. But um, yeah, it's been quite a change in the years that I've been in the program. So I'm curious to hear what Randall has to say. All right, Randall. Thank you. Yes, that's a great question. Uh, for me again, yes, absolutely in 90, it was more cut and dry, pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Uh, it's about 12 years ago, we made some considerable changes. And I'd like to say our program is very fair. It's kind of an elaborate process, but it's a point system. And I like it. I think it's pretty objective. Uh, a person applies for Randolph Shepard vending with their clients. Here we go through Division of Blind Services in Florida. Anyone listening, reach out, go on Division of Blind Services website, and you can reach out to your local client uh, services at your district office. They'll get you on your way into the Randolph Shepard program. That's the start. But <clears throat> then after you apply and you're accepted into the program, you go through Daytona, one starts there, that's adult on site. We have 18 weeks of training with specific modules in food service, uh, business, or in six different, and then after your 18 weeks, you're licensed. You take the, the state health to pass by then, most people do. Then you're a licensed vendor in Florida. 
and <clears throat> you have six to 10 weeks of OJT working with a blind operator on their site. And we try to make that as accommodating as possible. After the OJT is completed, they're on their way. <clears throat> the, then we have the application process for a facility, uh, which uh, that's the part I like. So it's we all take a 40 question test, standardized question uh, test, 40 questions that covers food service. You're, practic you're, you're learning that material during your 18 weeks of training. And every vendor goes through this. And as a seasoned longtime vendor, it can be challenging as well for them. Sometimes they're at a disadvantage to the new people because they're not out there getting those training skills in a classroom situation. They have to learn it on their own. So it's a 40 question test. Top five scores move on to the interview process where they're interviewed in front of a panel of three of our blind peers plus two state agent people. So it's five people in the room, a full on interview, dress nicely, wear that suit and tie, nice business suit. And then after the interview, you're scored on that. So you get 40 points for the test, 25 points for the interview, remaining balance of 35 points that are called experience points, which is a way of getting, I won't get into that, but sorry, it sounds <laughs> more complicated. I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> I gave it my best shot. <laughs> uh, well, that was a pretty good shot. Um, and, you know, one thing all of you said is each state is different. And I know that Mississippi and Florida do not reciprocate as far as letting you take your certification from one state to another. Is that all states? Do they do any states reciprocate with your certification? <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm going to speak to something here in Minnesota. Um, um, typically, I would say in the past, if you came in from another state, and even if you had been a vendor in another state, you probably would have had to start from square one to uh, go through all of our training and, and get into a business. Um, and on Friday, we had a meeting here in Minnesota, our elected uh, committee. And um, they did ask me to mention that we do have an outstanding business available here in Minnesota. And uh, we are uh, putting out the word nationwide. I, this business flat out makes money. Um, it's it, it's uh, a prison, uh, partially a prison and partially a, uh, oh, I don't even know what they call it. Uh, another form of a a prison. Um, people typically don't get out. Um, they're sexual criminals and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but this business is probably our top getter. Uh, it's either one or two. And um, if anybody is in the program and looking for an opportunity, uh, this is a place you want to look at. Um, certainly, our director would love to talk to uh, anybody who's interested. And we're going to do our level best to work with somebody to get them up and running in this new or in this business. It's been around a long time, and it's um, <laughs> it's inflation proof and everything else. Being a prison, it's it, it's a fantastic opportunity. But I wanted to bring that up um, as well. So I, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, that's that's the word here for Minnesota. Wow. How about New York, Karen? Uh. I think for the most part, you do have to go through the training from the beginning. 
Um, I don't know of any exceptions being made yet, but it may. Um, we've had a lot of different things just very recently happen in New York. Um, if, if I'll, I'll just go into a little bit of detail. We have one of the best mini Randolph Shepard Acts in the country, giving us priority on all um, state property. And that was signed into law into 2010. And um, the advocates, including myself, I am the uh, chairperson for the State Committee of Blind Vendors currently. I am also ACP New York president. I think I should throw that in there too. Yeah, I knew that, but I forgot, yeah. and I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> I, well, you, you know, just for those people listening, you know, it doesn't always have to be either or. You can really multitask with advocates. Yeah, we do, don't we? <laughs> for, um, for the first time in New York history, Department of Corrections here. Um, is acknowledging um, our priority. Unfortunately, had this happened in 2010 when it was supposed to, New York would have had time to roll out entering into the prison slowly. Um, now we're in a position where they said, okay, you asked for them, you got them, all 44 contracts are up. <laughs> wow. So we currently have 70 facilities, 63 managers, and now we have opportunities in 44 more locations Ooh. so <laughs> i so it's a good time to get trained and move to new york <laughs> it, it is and i i think and i, I can't speak to this 100 percent, but i think any manager around the country who has real experience in vending um and again i can't say 100 percent, but i would believe that the sla may be a little more flexible on that, but I can't say that for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, our training is is really not that challenging. It it it's it gives you a good a lot of you know a, a good amount of information, a good amount of on site training, and it's that on site training where you really learn the in and outs of um, of facilities. Speaking of, and Randall, I'm not going to ask you because I know Florida's policy unless they've changed. So. Well, I just wanted to add one thing. You know, these guys are tempting me, but cold Minnesota and New York, I mean, all these opportunities, yeah. you guys are tempting, but I'm in the warm sunshine state. Can I really move out there? I don't know. You guys are tempting us. You know? I'm glad to hear all these opportunities out there. That's excellent. Oh, That's yeah. It's a, yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, I mean, we've got a lot of younger vendors or people that are interested in the vending program that it would be a perfect opportunity for them to start a new, you know. Yep. Sheila, can I can I add one quick thing? Absolutely. Here? You know, uh, as president of RSVA, uh, we're we're always looking at how we're doing throughout the country as far as how many vendors and opportunities, etc. And you know, for the younger folks, um, there's jobs out there where you can be very involved with with the electronics, right? You. Um, computers have really changed our lives. Uh, for some of you folks who are older and saw this change, you can relate to what I'm saying. For some of you younger people, you just don't know because you weren't there and I get it. But um, if uh, working with those types of things interests you, let me tell you, in the vending industry, we've got telemetry, we, we've got card readers, we've got, I mean, there's a lot going on. And the quicker you can get onto that stuff, oh, the sky's the limit for you. So I, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, 
uh, folks do take a good look at our program and uh, see the potential because there's an incredible amount of potential in our program right now. Well, and Karen mentioned that it's a federal program. So for those out there, what other than prisons and roadside um, rest areas, what else does the, the program cover? What, what, what types of facilities for those that might not know? So we have the priority on all federal properties, which you know, includes federal buildings, um, military. Military is a very big thing right now in military dining. Um, under the law, it is the blind vendor's priority to um, secure some of those contracts. That um, gets a little complicated because some states are a little more agreeable than others. Um, but those are huge, huge, very lucrative opportunities. Uh, of course, you already mentioned the federal highways. Um, help me out, guys, here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Karen, ahead, as well, uh, micro markets is the big hot thing we have since after uh, the pandemic. Micro markets, like Scott was saying, that's technology. We've got young vendors now that are new and they come in and they blow us older folks out of the water with the technology. I have to say it that way. I'm an older folks. I'll just <laughs> categorize myself there. But these young people that have these tech skills, they have no fear. I mean, micro markets, that's technology at its best. Uh, God, yeah. And what do you mean that. when you say micro, micro markets, market? It's yeah. a smart refrigerator. It's technology. These are replacing our standard over-the-counter food service cafeterias that we knew before because of the pandemic, these cafeterias had to shut down. Micromarket, it's tech, it's using a refrigerator, uh, cold case, the foods. See, when we think of reaching in and grabbing out a cold sandwich, you know, mm -hmm. from a cold mm -hmm. machine, we think, oh, that's kind of not very good choice. It's evolving into great choices of nice salads. There are companies out there that are selling these products for a micro market. It's a, a standalone facility where it's self-checkout, automated. Customers okay. come in and, yeah, and they reach into refrigerators without having a, a customer service person behind the counter. Uh, yeah. It's self-service checkout, right. but it's much more. They prepare, it's almost prepared foods that they self-check out, good quality products. Right. Just got, right. did you, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, do, I do have a micro market in, in my portfolio as well here. And my, my joke about micro markets is I could sell everything from a can of soup to a set of tires for your car if I wanted. <laughs> um, the, the, the options are endless. Uh, if you can come up with a, a SKU number for that product, you can sell it. It's like a convenience store. It's like mm -hmm. a convenience store with, with, without any attendance. Uh, um, I know the facility I'm in, it's cameraed. Um, there's only personnel inside the building are allowed to get into my micro market. So um, theft is not a real big issue at all. Now, I, I, there's a couple things I could talk about, but I won't for the most part, it's, it's fantastic. Your, your shrinkage is very small. Um, they're, they're a great option. And in the case of where I'm at, we had a vending uh, set of a bank of vending machines and we took that out and put this in and um, the operator who was there quadrupled, quadrupled the sales in one year, just snapped, just like that. It just went. So um, 
they're a great opportunity. That's just one of the ways that people could get into this program. And uh, I know here in Minnesota, we also have a very good mini Randolph Shepard Act. And you'll find throughout the country, um, like Karen was alluding to, you know, um, we're going to be at federal facilities. That That's not too much of an issue. Uh, your mini Randolph Shepard may allow you to be into state facilities or county or city facilities. It depends on your, your mini Randolph Shepard Act. Here in Minnesota, it allowed us access into the prison system. Uh, we're at almost all the state and community colleges, um, a number of state buildings um, who may have had cafeterias. Uh, we don't really do cafeterias anymore, shrinking populations, but we do vending. We're, we made the decision a number of years ago that we were going to really emphasize vending in the state of Minnesota. And so um, almost all of our facilities are vending. So um, there's a wide number of options for places people could be you know um, mm -hmm. we've got some really good post offices some good college environments that we're in the prisons have been phenomenal phenomenal and uh yeah it's just it, it's a joy to know that you can you can end up in some of these places that are just uh, really good money makers now randall how about florida do they have a mini vending program yes yeah, so we do we also have the yes the mini randolph shepherd act and that extends out to state buildings. We have a lot of state buildings. We have 150 facility and we're always looking at new opportunities. Post offices was mentioned by Scott. Our post offices thrived throughout the past two and a half years. Uh, they were busier than ever. And as Scott said, we have multiple vending machines and routes. Uh, for people coming in, they're listening and, and considering this. I always tell people, new people, just come in, stay the course, keep an open mind, and plan to work hard, but the rewards are great. They are. And of course, they, they have to be willing to relocate if, if they need to. And how, I'm sure transportation's got to be a concern for a Randolph Shepard vendor. So what's your, what's your opinion on that, all of you? I'll Uber, Uber. <laughs> be creative. <laughs> We all have employees. We're in our own business. We run our own business like anyone else. We hire an employee as needed. If that employee mm -hmm. has to drive us, they do that too. Mm -hmm. uh, we find a ways to do it. We become very creative, independent, and we find a way to get the job done. That's my. Yep. Your, your, your biggest limitation may be yourself. <laughs> Just well thinking said. about all the options that you could look at. Karen, transportation, did you I think we all find our way to do it. We really do, right. honestly. Not to simplify your my answer to you, but uh, bus is, uh, you know, honestly, it, it really is just put the mindset that I have a business to run. How am I going to accomplish that? And that's mm -hmm. just one more part of the equation. So you need to have a plan in place before you even actually no, attempt no. to get trained or no? I wouldn't say that. I say come in with an open mind and you'll get the training you need as you go along. You will evolve as a person. You will learn. No, I don't think you should. No one really has a plan coming into this is my part. I think they would have come in and you are going to learn. Well, I know Florida's massive and I know New York's massive. My family's from upstate New York. So Karen, how about you with transportation? What part of New York are you in? So I'm in the Buffalo, New York area, which is Western New York. And mm -hmm. Um, we have more um, smaller facilities inside buildings than we do 
uh, vending routes. The largest vending route in our area is mine. Um, I span seven counties. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I agree exactly with what Randall and Scott said. Everything in Randolph Shepherd is a choice. I didn't prefer to be in a building. I wasn't comfortable with 30 second conversations with people all day long. Um, you know, the hi, how you're doing, have a great day conversation. I found that I wanted to make the investment myself, um, you know, into the vehicles, into the drivers, you know, into the benefits for my drivers. Um, so, so much comes down to personal choice, but relocation, it, it all comes down to what you want. In this area, if you want a store in downtown Buffalo and you want to stay there, you know, you pick your location and, you know, you never really have to move far from there. Um, I don't live in the city. I live in a suburb. Um, so I'm, I'm outside. I don't have, I don't have exceptional, exceptionally good public transportation, but I have five employees that I'll drive. Um, and then, you know, for other people, Uber and Lyft, and I know you're going to have a whole conversation about this later and guide dogs and everything, but Uber and Lyft has changed the perspective for blind people all over. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to be limited to living on a bus line anymore. Mm -hmm. And Randolph Shepard gives us the freedom to choose what part of our state or what state we live in, you know, because it's a federal program, you know, really the opportunities are just endless. Wow. All right, let's do a little bit of um, thinking back over the past two and a half years. I know all of you have been through the COVID crisis. And um, my question to you is one, how did the pandemic affect your vending program? Of course, Scott, it probably didn't affect yours at all. <laughs> but how did it affect you? My first question. And how are you recovering from this past two and a half years? So let's start, let's start with Randall. Yeah, thank you for the question. I'm in a rest area. We have 50 rest areas in Florida. Immediately when the pandemic began, I can recall it like it was yesterday. I was suddenly literally unemployed. We went from our normal sales pretty much down to zero sales for uh, about three months. Cars wow. were not on the road. Nobody was stopping in. And I'm talking to the other vendors and we're all having the same situation. A severe impact, totally, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. Florida. Uh, rest areas came back quicker than many things. Post offices did maintain very well. They were kind of in a bubble since uh, those services had to continue. I mean, they were impacted short term, maybe a month or two initially. Uh, rest areas, three to four months initial impact and slowly coming back. I mean, sales slowly creeping up over the period of a year and a half, 18 months of 20% of our normal sales, 30%. And across the board, state buildings, federal buildings, people were told to stay home. Our customer bases in those buildings were done. People were literally unemployed for a year and a half, no doubt. Wow. Karen, how about you? So 
New York is so complex with the geographic differences. Um, downstate New York, so the New York City region was absolutely devastated. Um, in fact, they still are. There's some places in New York City that still have not reopened or come back yet. Um, upstate, so my area, didn't get quite hit as hard, but there was a dramatic you know, drop in, in the state buildings, especially because state people were told to stay home or work virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my vending route, I, I have state buildings, but I also have rest areas in the airport. And I can tell you, I don't, I don't think COVID was really real for me until I was at the Buffalo International Airport and there was like nobody there. The place where I never had to worry about a bag of chips expiring or not expiring, but a best sell date coming, coming uh, through. I had to start watching dates at the Buffalo International Airport. It was mind blowing. Our SLA though, so that's a state licensing agency. For those of us that chose to work, first of all, we were given a choice. If you didn't want to work, you didn't have to. If you felt you were putting your life at risk, you closed your store and you stayed home. A lot of managers did that. And a lot of managers had no choice because their buildings were shut down. What we did is New York did have a very healthy um, bank account, um, which was money that was put in through unassigned money, through vendors' levies throughout the years, you know, different avenues of revenue for for the state. Our SLA was able to give people fair minimum return payments. So that was um, a stipend of money every month or every other month um, throughout the good majority of the crisis. Um, And then also the recreation of the program. And now Scott and Randall both talked about this places where there were cafeterias were then turned into vending or micro markets. Um, There were things that were on unassigned vending, just as an example, speaking of myself, we had a federal detention center that was on unassigned. So a company was doing the vending and then paying a commission back to our program. I was hurting so bad. You know, my, my district supervisor came to me and said, do you want it? And this was in September of 2020, and I jumped all over it. And, you know, one of the things he said is, just so you know, ahead of time, prisons have the highest COVID rate. Um, I have children at home that I still have to support, so I really didn't have a choice. So that was added to my route. But the recreation from our state agencies, you know, what was amazing, the, the way they took these cafeterias, took them and put them in the micro markets, put vending in. Um, so a very good situation, but we do still have managers very devastated and, and not even back to work yet in New York city. Wow. Scott, how about you? Well, uh, I'll give you a two factor answer. I'll speak about my personal, uh, ups and downs and, um, and then our state here in Minnesota, uh, personally, um, as you said, with that incredible captive audience, <laughs> um, the, the prison kept me going. It, mm-hmm. it, they really kept me going because um, at, the, at my college, which is another good chunk of my business, um, I had just brought in a huge order uh, ready to go when they came back from spring break. And guess what? They never oh. opened the doors to do that. 
So it was a tremendous loss of product and uh, it was pretty heartbreaking. It really was. And I wasn't sure what the future held. Um, I was hoping I'd be okay, but uh, it, it did turn out good. And um, um, there were some times we had to pause in the prison. I am actually on the cell blocks with the inmates. They know my name. Um, and uh, when when the outbreak became really bad inside the prison, we would just pause, you know, and it just especially before the vaccines, it was not worth my life yeah. to to fill machines and they didn't want to hear that but um that was my choice and um you know once things kind of settled down we'd go back in and start up again and it was all good and so um so i saw a little bit of both i had some state buildings that also closed um so some of my stuff sat for a while but um uh, moving forward to now, uh, my college is back to, I would say, if I'm not back to where I was in 2019, I'm knocking at the door. Um, I can't believe how quickly that's come back because the first year it was terrible. <laughs> it just wasn't yeah, sure. It wasn't good. But um, uh, we, too, have had businesses here in Minnesota that are sitting idle. Um, they've been devastated. And um, we've had other ones. For instance, the prisons, the post offices uh, that have just thrived. So um, it's all over the map. And, um, you know, we've done what we could do as a management committee to support those folks. And uh, um, there were some federal funds that came through that helped all states. Um, don't don't do that. That's my next question. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's um, we're looking better than we did, but they're like, like I said, there's still some businesses that are still closed. So, um, wow. so that's my report there. Well, you know, that's interesting to hear this because I, I, I have some friends that in fact, one of my friends just retired from the vending here in Florida. And I know he, w he was in the um, federal buildings and or state, I guess he was state. I, I don't remember. I don't know. Things like the Department of Treasury, I guess you consider those federal and state, right? Because they're, they're a state office that's a federal, under the yeah, federal, I guess. So, much. yeah. My next question, which Scott almost alluded to, is <laughs> how did the states and the the Division of Blind Services and the vending program overall and the federal government assist you guys during all of that crisis? Yeah, in Florida, we, we lost some vendors through it. Uh, we did get federal funding after a long term. It took a while, but the Randolph Shepard uh, administration did get federal funding. I think the big message for us all, we're entrepreneurs and where we're going now, the direction we're going, uh, Recreate. We all are fighters and survivors, and I think we're on the right path now. But to answer your question on that, it, it was tough. But some people went back to SSDI that were able to apply and be approved for it because mm -hmm. they had no income. Mm -hmm. uh, and others had to make do. Some found other jobs, or maybe they had partners in life or something to help them out. Being creative, honestly. But I'll wow. let Karen speak on that more. Karen, how about you? How did the government help you? Well, and, and this is really something that the federal government did that I actually really value and appreciate. Um, you know, RSA did come down with some funding for the blind managers, but there was very specific criteria put in place that it was not a, what I call a gimme program uh, for all blind vendors. 
you had to show a loss. If you couldn't show a loss, you did not receive this money. And I was 100% in favor of that. Um, like I said, here in upstate, we weren't as devastated as the people in downstate. Um, therefore, you know, the funding was there for the people that really needed it. That's um, great. And now, you know, when I say upstate did better than downstate, it just means we weren't closed as long and, and our state buildings came back much quicker um, than, than the downstate area. And geographically, it's very different. Mm -hmm. um, the whole dynamic is different. You know, like I had said earlier, our state did have very healthy funds. So we were able to get some financial relief out to managers on a somewhat regular basis, so monthly or bi-monthly. And then um, we, we had a, a really nice situation with one of our contracts, one of our state agencies. It was actually SUNY, which is the State University um, New York. And um, it, it's a complicated situation, so I don't wanna go into a lot of details, but um, we, we received some funding that came into the program and then that was distributed to the manager. So it was timing sometimes is everything. And um, that just worked out to where the managers, nobody made money off bare minimum returns or the money from the federal government. I wanna make that very clear. You know, we did not make money, but it was a little relief to where people could pay their mortgages and buy food. Um, but that's that's how yes. it worked here in New York. With that statement, what... yes, <laughs> that statement's a factual statement. True, it was yep. a relief. Just yep. to help out. Gotcha, Scott. How about you? And then I've got one more question, but we might skip it and see if we have any questions from our participants in the in the clubhouse and in Zoom. So, Scott, how about you? How did the government help you? So, uh, uh, yeah, I I did receive some federal funding, like Karen had mentioned. You know, you had to show some some loss, which I certainly did. Um, part of my business was almost crushed, um, but. Um, that did help, and um, it 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 helped a lot of our operators. It really did. When we got that federal funding, um, you had to show a loss, and you know there were some operators that had no loss. They had prisons; they were able to keep going. They didn't want to even talk about any funds. But we had folks that were devastated, and they were able to receive some funds. Um, so that was a great help. Uh, the other thing here in Minnesota that happened that was quite amazing is that. Um, so we're tied to our services for the blind um, here in Minnesota. And uh, in services for the blind, their, their uh, uh, folks weren't visiting with clients really at all for a while. So there really wasn't much going on with the caseworkers. And they had a, the state had acquired uh, quite a bit of money that was being unused. And our director, I will say a masterful job, he managed to land us $1.8 million to purchase new equipment. Our equipment was rapidly aging. We were having some issues getting parts. And uh, that money has really rehabilitated our vending equipment. I'm, I'm back. <laughs> the problem is now a lot of it's sitting in the warehouse because we can't find delivery people to get it out into the field. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Oh, so if you if you can drive and you want to deliver machines call you right <laughs> right exactly exactly 
So, wow. so the, the, there's a bright future there too for us. It's just um, getting those machines out into the field where we need them, and um, mm-hmm. that that will happen. It's just going a lot slower than we anticipated. But wow. um, we we are fortunate here in Minnesota to be able to get back on our feet the way we are. So. Okay, well, let's see if we have any questions. Belinda, do we have anybody that would like to ask these three lovely people a question? I see Jane has her hand raised. Hi, Jane. How are you today? I am uh, deeply proud to be here because I grew up during some years when the prospect of ending up in a workshop or such a federally supported business was an anathema in my family. That was below, uh, it was degrading to think that way. And over the years of my life as a totally blind person, one of the biggest lessons has been to take pride, find proudness where it could be. And this program has done that for me remarkably because I know vendors in various states and I love it. I It just makes me proud when people say, I'm going to just go do it and they get on it and do it. And um, now we live in Texas and I don't know any vendors here yet, but I'm looking for them just to get to know them. Have <laughs> yeah, friends. But anyway, <laughs> I, I know it, but bless each of you with the resources you need with the continued smarts to go get what you need. And you really are a demonstration to me, uh, and I'm sure to others, about how to get it done. So that's, I just really appreciate this hour. Oh, Thanks. thank you, Jane. Thank, thank you. you for being here. Yeah, that was you. so sweet. Thank you Lucy, so much. Lucy, Lucy, do we have anybody in Clubhouse that would like to ask our panel a question? No, we do not. Not at this time. Thank you okay. for asking. All right. Thank you. All right, Belinda, how about in Zoom? We've got a couple minutes. Ron Brooks. Hi, Ron. How are you today? I'm doing great. This is a really interesting um, discussion, and I have a question, and I'm not sure who wants to take it. Y'all can, or, or somebody can just grab it. You know, the, to, as, as I think about this program, it seems to me that that the vending program is is an amazing example of how a public private partnership could work as a rehab model you know for uh, you know you're using some government investment to launch businesses that are you know that then become you know very successful for the people that you know put in the work and and you know take the risk and do and put in the effort um, my question is this you know, I'm an entrepreneur as well um, but not in a vending program, the rehab system typically doesn't serve other kinds of entrepreneurship very well. I mean, it just, it just doesn't. Um, what do you think are lessons that the rest of the rehab system could take from the vending program to maybe support other types of entrepreneurship within the blind community? Wow. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. Go ahead, Karen. So, you know, as we all know, living in different states, and by the way, hi, Ron, how are you? Um, we, um, each state is different and each blind services is different here in New York. We have the New York state commission for the blind, which is under office of child and family services. We do have through our VR office. If you want to be an entrepreneur, 
and you don't want to be a Randolph Shepard vendor, our V offer does does have business plans. If you can show a, a solid business plan, um, they will help. So I I think that question run kind of goes into the differences in in the individual states. Um, but I think there should be some type of entrepreneurial program in every state. It reminds me, we do have something like that in Florida, which I tend to forget about, but it is absolutely. Yep. The only, only thing I can add to this, and I'm sure we do in Minnesota as well, I'd have to dig into that a little deeper, but unfortunately, and this is unfortunate, I think we're one of the better kept secrets in the United States. I, I, um, I, I'm still surprised that I'll have a conversation with people and they'll say, you do what and how do you do it? And where did you, where did you learn about this? And uh, it just amazes me. Um, I, how we're still such a secret, I, I'll never know. Yeah. If, Sheila, if you don't have any hands up, I, I would like to, to just say something about the program overall. Go ahead and, and make it quick so we can wrap this hour up because we've got another full hour coming up. So. A ab absolutely, absolutely. Randolph Shepard, um, <clears throat> you know, around the country has benefited blind people, you know, for many, many years. But and there is still some misconceptions about what being a Randolph Shepard vendor means. And I got to tell you, I'm a mother and a grandmother. I'm obviously female. And I'm out there doing it just like everybody else is doing it. I also, <clears throat> I have a bachelor's degree in something called forensic math and an extended education degree in nonprofit organizations. And the reason I'm saying that is because the old way of thinking that Randolph Shepard is just for people who don't go to college, or don't have a degree, it's a misconception. We have 70% of blind people that are unemployed. And it's important to me that everybody understands that this program has something for everybody. You can be, you know, 60 years old and still come to the program, or you can be 18 like my son, who's full of energy and a big goal to support a future family, um, you know, in, in a very comfortable way. Um, I would encourage anybody who is unemployed and who is interested in owning your own business and being an entrepreneur, look at the program in your state, look at the programs in the other states because there are opportunities just out there waiting uh, for people. And I'd just like to, to close out by saying, Randolph Shepard is truly the last and only program based solely on being blind. The other programs, federal government has cut every other program specifically for blind. This is the only one that's a national program. And I am proud to have been able to support my family being a Randolph Shepard vendor. Well, all I can say on that note is Karen, Randall, and Scott, wow, you guys have brought an immense amount of information to everybody that is listening. I can't thank you enough. Scott, why don't you tell anyone that's listening how they can find more about the RSVA um, special interest affiliate? Sure. Uh, so we, um... We do have a website, rsva. Uh, I believe it's .org, and um, there's a lot of information on there. Um, uh, so being a, being a, a member of RSVA is not an expensive endeavor. We charge ten dollars a year to be a member. Uh, 
Um, you get a lot of benefits. We put out periodicals with lots of information that we put together. Um, one of our big key things, and I'm so proud of this, is our sagebrush convention, where we all gather one week in February. And let me tell you, do we have a lineup this year for our convention? Everything from um, somebody may come in and talk about bookkeeping, someone may come in and talk about vending machines. We even have a, a golf clinic. Uh, we're doing a walk. We just do so many things. We have an auction. It's just a power packed week. And until you experience it, you can't even believe what it is. So uh, I encourage anybody who has been a member and has not taken the opportunity to go to Sagebrush. It's a must do. It awesome. absolutely is a must do. So uh, well, I I'll hope leave that. Thank, and I'm always available for questions. So. Thank you so, so much, all three of you. Thank you for a wonderful hour. I appreciate you being here. Stick around for the next hour. It should prove to be very interesting. Dela, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been guys, great. Stay safe. Thank you. All right. We are at the beginning of our second hour of Sunday edition on October 23rd. Byron, our next hour is about guide dogs. So how about you read the little promo thing? All right. So uh, GDUI's advocacy committee, officers and board are actively working to bring the issue of rideshare denials of service to guide dog users uh, to the attention of the U.S. Department of Justice to become more involved in this advocacy issue effort uh, to ask questions or share information, please contact the committee at this address, advocacy at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that is advocacy at guidedogusersinc.org or call GDUI's toll-free number 866-799-8436. Again, that number is 866 866- Seven nine nine eight four three six. Thank you, Byron. And all right, this next hour is dedicated to our guide dog of special interest affiliate and the issues concerning rideshare programs with denials of taking those of us that are dog users and allowing us to take part. And I am thrilled to have three amazing advocates with ACB. Margie Donovan, who is from Folsom, California. She is a member of ADP, uh, the ADP, the Audio Descriptive Project Committee Subcommittee, and a member of the newly formed committee and the Mental Health and uh, Awareness Committee. Welcome, Margie. Thank you, Sheila. Happy to be here. Thank you. Becky Davidson, who is from Charlotte, North Carolina. She's the first vice president of North Carolina and the chair of the Pedestrian Environment Access Committee for ACB. And Ron Brooks. Welcome, Becky. How are you? Thanks, Sheila. Great. How are you? I'm good. And Ron Brooks from Phoenix, Arizona, who is the founder of Accessible Avenue. I can't thank the three of you enough for 
agreeing to be here today. So jump in. How do you guys want to start talking about the denials for guide dogs and what people can do about it? This is Margie, and I'm actually going to ask that each of us introduce ourselves and our, um, sorry, introduce ourselves and our guide dogs. How many years have we worked with guide dogs? And um, maybe a minute or so on, on issues you've had with rideshare companies. So I'll start first. Okay. I am currently working my seventh seeing eye dog. I have been working um, dogs for 41 and a half years. Um, since my senior year of high school. And um, I got to tell you myself, I don't experience a lot of rideshare denials, um, but I have experienced some. And I am very passionate about this topic, uh, not necessarily for myself and for the few that I have and will face, but um, for all my blind brothers and sisters that are guide dog handlers, um, as mentioned previously in the first um, hour, is uh, Lyft and Uber, and in some states there's additional rideshare companies, have really opened up the doors for us. Well, that's not quite true if you have a guide dog. So I'm going to turn it over to Becky. Hi, everybody. Um, I am currently working my fourth Guiding Eyes dog. I've been a guide dog user since 1995. I'll let you do the math. And, um, <laughs> and, and um, I have experienced some rideshare denials, um, particularly since the pandemic, which that's a whole other ball game. Um, I also experienced my share of taxicab denials. So this whole issue of dogs in cars um, can be, although it should not be, it can be uh, a tricky one. And I, like Margie and Ron, am passionate about ensuring that our rights as travelers with guide dogs are respected. Ron. Thank Welcome. you, Becky. How about you, Ron? Well, good morning, uh, everybody, or good afternoon. That's your pleasure. Uh, I'm Ron Brooks, sitting out in Phoenix, Arizona, where it is still morning. And um, I have been a guide dog user since 1988, uh, so about 34 years. And uh, I think I'm on my eighth or ninth dog, and my current dog uh, I've had for about a year uh, from the seeing eye. So um, I have, um, you know, like Becky, lots of issues with cabs back in the days before rideshare. Um, since um, using rideshare services, you know, like most of us, it's a mix of Uber and Lyft. Um, and there are others, which you know, we can talk about later. But uh, I, I was looking it up yesterday. I, I've taken 1,800 trips on Lyft in my time with Lyft, and I've taken about as many on Uber, maybe a few less than that. Um, and I have experienced um, a pretty substantial number of uh, rideshare denials, um, and particularly um, that... You, I travel quite a bit and certain places just seem to be really challenging. Um, so uh, I don't know how many I've had, but there was a point where it seemed like about one, and this is really probably right after the pandemic, about one in three trips uh, was going to be a denial one way or the other. And it was to the point where, yeah, I was avoiding using rideshare services altogether if possible. And uh, because I just have better things to do than stand on the side of the road, getting frustrated. So uh, I'm, I'm in this issue. It's my profession. Uh, I work with the industry and uh, I'm committed to solving it for me, for all of you all, uh, and for all the other people that you know, these services offer tremendous potential, but they're going nowhere if we can't really 
solve this issue. Thank you, Ron. Um, I want to talk a bit about what has um, inspired me um, to work on this issue, specifically along with Becky Davidson. There's been a lot of effort by NFB, by ACB, by individuals, and, um, and even GDUI. But I personally did not feel enough was being done. We had had a number of lawsuits and um, everybody got money, but there was no injunctive relief. And just for those that may not know what that means, it's very common in an ADA lawsuit to um, have injunctive relief, which means a change in policy. That in a nutshell, that's what it means. If there's any attorneys listening, don't cringe at me. I'm not an attorney. <laughs> but I've been in a number of ADA um, settlements, actions, lawsuits, and the main key is you go for what you want changed. And to the best of my knowledge, in talking to Tim Elder, who's the National Federation of the Blind of California president, who's been very involved, he happens to be an attorney as well, um, he agrees. And um, in a couple of cases I know of, that's been the case. With the NFB lawsuit, unfortunately, um, for a period of about three years, which has now been expired, thank God, um, nobody could sue for injunctive relief. Don't ask me how that got that way, but um, I got that clarification from Tim. So if I wanted to go sue last year and say, hey, I've been denied, I could not go for injunctive relief. So what that tells me is the rideshare companies are pretty smart. They'd rather pay the money because they have a lot of money and it doesn't make a difference. So while um, all these different things were happening, I'm watching all these posts on Facebook, on um, the GDUI chat pages and business pages about this. And um, I, I'm very active in the seeing I graduate list. And I would always write back and say, did you file a, com a complaint with the company? Nine times out of 10 people didn't. They just got on social media and complained about it. And um, so I contacted Becky. Well, actually do, after doing some research, I found out what we needed to start doing that really hadn't been done much, if at all, was complaints to DOJ. And that's Department of Justice. And um, we've got some wonderful people out there who have been filing complaints almost daily. The unfortunate thing is we're getting letters, our typical letters that we expect. And those letters say, we're too busy basically to take your case. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean they won't make a case of it down the road. We need people to continue to file. I do want to say one thing. I used to use taxis a lot. And this is no different than using a taxi. I can't believe the number of discriminations I have in taxi. I try to get a taxi in San Francisco and I have my young son out on the street waiting for it while I'm hiding in a doorway with my dog and he'd open the door and get in and I'd come and get in. Um, with Uber and Lyft, the two major companies I'm going to speak of, they drive by us. We don't even know that they're there. Um, so 
I think that we, we had hoped when these um, rideshare services came along, things would be different. There was a point with a taxi driver that I personally sued him. California has some additional laws um, because typically under the ADA, you can't sue for damages um, unless you can prove extensive damages, um, which in the Lisa Irving case, who, who um, ended up getting $1.5 million, I believe it was, and no, she didn't get it all, of course, the attorneys got most of it. Um, she, was, she was documenting carefully and really um, showing the out-of-pocket expenses this was causing her, including lateness to work and stuff. So um, I'm not going to go on here. There's, there's a lot of work we have to do. There's a lot of work that's being done. And this is the part that Becky and I focus on. I want to invite my dear friend of many, many years, um, who I asked to come and talk with this and who we all know, or most of us know, he has his own company and has to happen to be in the area of transportation and someone I depend on a lot as an expert in this area. So Ron, would you take it from here? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And she said many, many years. I would prefer to think of it as many years, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, let me just kind of set the stage a little bit around some of the issues from the legal regulatory perspective that that kind of kind of point to the issue of, of filing federal complaints, uh, which was something that that I had had suggested. Um, and, I, and I don't follow closely everything that the community ha- was doing on this issue before. Uh, but but this this come there, there's a reason why this process makes sense. And I want to just walk through it. So first off, there's two terms, and I want to make sure everybody is using terms correctly. Uh, one term is rideshare, uh, which we think of as Uber and Lyft. The industry term for those companies is transportation network company, TNC. So if you hear TNC and rideshare, those typically mean the same thing. Uh, people in the public usually use the word rideshare. People in the industry usually say TNC. I might slip up and use one or both. So just that that's what that is. So the first question is, how are these companies, Rideshare, TNC, how are they covered under the ADA? And it's interesting because there's really two ways they get covered. In in public transportation and paratransit, which is where most of us got our experience as blind people, we rode buses, we rode paratransit or dial-a-ride. Those industries are regulated typically under what's called ADA Title II, which is covered by the Department of Transportation, which is basically transportation regulations for public transit services. So when in the early days of these service denials, the thing about Uber and Lyft is sometimes they operate for public transit agencies, but usually they don't. Sometimes we'll get these services as part of a paratransit program, and that, yeah, I could gave examples of, of where that is. But for the most part, when we are using services like Uber and Lyft, we are doing so as private citizens. We're getting the app. We're requesting a trip uh, that we're taking on our own and paying with our own money for. Those, that's not public transportation. And so it's really important to think about how are the TNCs or rideshare companies regulated for that business. And they are regulated just like every other private business. So if you go to a restaurant, 
if you go to a hotel, if you go to a supermarket um, and you experience discrimination under the ADA, the Department of Justice is who is responsible for making for overseeing that. And so if you were going to file a federal complaint, you would defile a complaint with the Department of Justice. So the TNCs, they see it a little different, um, and particularly Uber. Uh, the TNCs have asserted that they are technology platforms, and their private business, their primary business is not transportation. They, they see themselves as providing technology to individuals who wish to drive their personal vehicles and make money. And so their position, this is, this is particularly Uber, uh, Lyft to a lesser extent, but Uber has been very clear. They believe that if we have a right of action, it's against the driver, not against them because they provide technology. However, so far, I mean, it's, and it's kind of funny because as, as these companies are saying to the, to the regulators, we don't provide transportation they are going to the transportation industry and to cities and towns and selling themselves as a transportation solution. So I think from our perspective as a community, and I think that it remains to be seen, it's pretty important for us in every chance we get is to refer to these services as transportation services. Because terms like rideshare and particularly rideshare and TNC, they're a little bit vague, but transportation service, that's really what they are. They are providing a transportation service that we're paying for. Um, they're marketed that way. Uh, they, their commercials work that way. The only time they don't look like a transportation service is when they're describing themselves to, to the, to the federal government and saying, don't regulate us. So, so far in the regulatory space, the department of justice has not been very aggressive on these cases. However, they have been aggressive in other cases. They've been very aggressive with wheelchair users who have sued uh, Uber in particular uh, over the inability to provide meaningful service for people that need wheelchair accessible vehicles. And Uber has settled agreements with the Department of Justice on those issues. So when these things started coming up, people you know complaining about service animal denials on rideshare it seemed to me that the place we should go is department of justice because department of justice regulates private private industry uber is a private company providing a service to customers the department of justice has been aggressive in some areas uh particularly with wheelchair accessibility so why not ours because the issues are really very much the same we're, we're trying to use a service and we're having our access rights denied. So, so that, that was kind of the nature of why it made sense to go there. What, what I want to um, just kind of close with before I hand this off is I want to just talk about some of the challenges that we face when using TNCs or ride shares. First, um, getting help inside the, the process of making a trip is almost impossible. When you're on the street, you, you can't reach a human being. Uh, it is almost impossible to call somebody and get help when you're being denied service. Um, filing complaints is an option. You can go to the Uber app or the Lyft app and you can report a complaint. You, it's very difficult to do it by phone or by email. You can do it through the app. It's really hard to get a response. Um, and sometimes the responses you get look, they just look like canned emails or canned letters. They don't, they're not genuine. 
And of course, the problem continues, which is the best proof of all that it's really not working. So, so, so my opinion is this, the industry can be made to work, uh, but it is going to require uh, effort. It's going to require regulators to regulate. And that means that we are going to have to get the regular re- regulators to regulate. And I know Margie and, and Becky will talk more about that. I, I do just also want to say there are different models for TNCs. There are companies coming into the marketplace. I work for one uh, called User, which is they're not really a retail provider of, of this service yet. Uh, but there are there are other companies that are focused on quality. Um, even within the particularly on the uh, Lyft and Uber platforms, there are higher levels of service. Um, I believe on Uber, it's called um, uh, Uber Comfort. And on Lyft, it's called Lyft Premium. These cost a little bit more, uh, but they do provide a higher level of service generally. There, there are ways to solve for this problem. The model is not the problem. It's the regulation of the model that's the problem. And so what we have to do is talk to regulators, make our p- appeal to regulators, and eventually they are going to get tired of all of these complaints these complaints do two things. They create frustration for regulators because, you know, they, it's resources for them. They have to spend resources to respond. At some point, they have a body of evidence that suggests that they need to step in. And I think that's what these complaints are going to do. So a lot has been done. I'm going to turn it over to, uh, I think, probably Becky to talk about what some of the other groups have done. Uh, and then we can take the conversation from there. Thank you, Ron. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ron. Um, GDUI um, was very strongly involved with the taxi cab denial issue. Um, And although this particular effort that we're discussing today was initiated by Margie, um, GDUI is fully in support of it. And so um, we'll be lending expertise in, in different aspects of this whole issue because the denials, um, you know, obviously are, are not going away. And NFB um, collected a lot of data and there was a lawsuit, um, but the agreement that was reached in that lawsuit regarding Uber has expired. So essentially we're back to square one. Um, I also think, um, and, you know, you kind of hate, it's getting a little, wearing to keep talking about the pandemic and how it impacted us, but it impacted us. So um, those couple of years um, made, did make, you know, some difference in this whole issue, whether, you know, anybody could say specifically that guide dog denials have um, increased as a result of the pandemic. I, I don't know. Um, I know some drivers use the excuse if there was a guide dog present that the person wasn't wearing a mask. Um, so, you know, that was another way around it. And drivers, they can be pretty creative about, um, about, about this issue. I know, I, I can't speak for the other guide dog schools, but I know, I, I suspect that they're doing similar things. One of the things that um, we can do is, help people to understand ways that they can maybe start to minimize the, the possibility of a denial or at least be prepared to complain to the company. Um, people who use IRA or Be My Eyes, 
um, actually have means of of having it having the situation witnessed. Um, not everybody subscribes to those, um, but both of those are are great services, and they can help you, especially when it comes to. Um, and I one of you mentioned this: the drivers drive <clears throat> driving right by. Um, you know, the your screen tells you what you're supposed to be looking for, which is great if you can see it. So, um, you know, having a service like Be My Eyes or Ira with you uh, on the phone um, can be helpful. Also, um, and this works fairly well, but not perfectly, Lyft does have a service, a guide dog uh, hotline that you can call and you can actually call it while you're waiting for your ride like within when you get the two-minute warning um, you, that your ride is coming you can call it and they can see who your driver is and you know where they are um, and I've had a couple of people tell me they actually had a, a denial stopped as a result of them being on the phone with the Lyft um, service dog hotline so, you know, but you can't always assume you're going to get somebody right away. You might be on hold for a while while they find somebody. But generally speaking, my experience has worked really well with that. Not necessarily waiting for my ride, but when this last complaint that this last denial I had, I got him on the phone while the guy was still pulling out of the driveway and uh, they knew exactly who it was and whether, and of course I, I filed the complaint with the company and I, and I got the email and whether or not, you know, and Ron's right, they don't necessarily feel genuine, but at least you're putting it out there. Um, and then when I did get to the train station, um, I did file a complaint, send in the complaint form to DOJ. Um, but the other thing that, that, you know, that we're talking about is just to protect yourself. If you know, if, learn how to take a screenshot when you get that ride, um, when you get that ride scheduled, take a screenshot um, of it, especially, you know, when, it, when it's getting close to your pickup. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, that organizations, that guide dog schools, that GDUI, um, I, I can't speak for NFB at this point um, as to what, what they're doing, but I suspect they're doing similar things as well. Um, so um, those are the kinds of things that, that we're trying to do. Um, and just, I hope that, you know, ultimately we can, uh, can resolve this in a, in a meaningful way, but we need to figure out what tools we can use to be successful. Um, so I'm going to turn it back over to Margie. Excellent. Thank you, Becky. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Becky. <laughs> Um, I think we covered this, but I'm going to check in with Ron. You know, when I when I identified the problem, and that this has been going on from years for years, and despite what was going on by the various consumer organizations and or guide dog affiliates, I decided I we had to take this much further. And so, as I always do when it comes to transportation, I call Ron Brooks. And Ron, Book, Ron Brooks gave me some great ideas. So I know I covered part of this. Is there anything else you want to add to that, Ron? Yeah. And at the risk of repeating myself, let me just kind of reiterate a couple of points that Becky made uh, and really just give you maybe a recipe uh, to think about as you're out and about 
with your guide dog and trying to use these services. Uh, first off, when you make your trip request, there's the first question is, do I, do I disclose that I have a guide dog to the driver? Or do I not disclose? You can do this through the app. There are a couple of ways to do it on both platforms through notes about your trip, or you can put something in your profile. Uh, and I will tell you, drivers, by the way, typically probably don't read your profile. So I think if you were going to disclose your notes is the best way. This is a big debate within the community. Do I tell? And some people say yes, because if I'm going to be denied, I'd rather be denied early so that I can get another driver sent and it might reduce the amount of time that I have to wait. Um, I will tell you personally, I have been denied um, on one particular day, four trips in a row. The drivers refused me. I was at an airport in a city in North Carolina. I won't um, say which guilty city, Um, (laughs) but you know, it was terrible. And I don't think disclosing would have made any difference um, because I would have been waiting no matter what. My personal feeling is that when we, first off, we we don't have a legal or moral obligation to disclose. The drivers are on a public platform. And by the way, both companies have very well expressed, at least in writing, policies guaranteeing access rights to people with service animals. And the drivers do have to acknowledge those policies. So you don't have a legal or ethical or moral responsibility to tell them in advance. The, The real problem is that when you tell them in advance, it, it, is, it becomes impossible to prove the reason for the denial because there could be other reasons that your driver turns down your trip. And so you don't really have much legal leg to stand on at that point. Now, uh, I, wanna, I, I do want to say, and I'm, uh, the Lyft line, um, that, uh, that's interesting. I actually didn't know that. Um, I don't have issues on Lyft like I do typically with Uber. Um, and I think that's kind of new. That's sort of interesting. What, what I, t- I wonder if it's available through the app and Becky, and when I'm done, if you want to comment, I, d- I don't think it is, but maybe it is. Um, what I, what I typically do is I book my trip. Um, I'm all ready. You know, at the time I'm on the curb, when that vehicle's two minutes away, I'm on the curb. Um, I don't want to give them any reason to deny the trip that you know, beyond the ones they'll come up with on their own. I do take a screenshot at one minute out uh, every time. It's really easy, and I use VoiceOver, and I can tell my phone to take a screenshot, and it just takes a screenshot and drops it right into my f- file with my fold, you know, my folder with other photos. So it's super simple. Um, I used to be very aggressive with drivers. Um, I am less so now because I know that I have a screenshot. I know that it's probably not going to go my way anyway, and I'm not sure I want to be in a car with somebody who doesn't want me in their car. Um, it depends. Sometimes I'll be pushy if it's been the third denial in a row and I really need to get somewhere, but typically I, I let it go, you know, live to fight another day. A couple of things that I also do, so I do file a complaint with the company every time. Um, it does take time and it's a pain, um, but I do. And, um, of course, there's the Department of Justice complaint. I think another thing that people might want to think about is particularly if you are at a public place that is either regulated or that has a large commercial uh, presence, making your complaint not only to the company, but also to the business. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, When I'm at a hotel and I travel a fair amount, 
if, if I get a denial and it's only happened once or twice at a hotel, I go to the hotel themselves and I say, Hey, this just happened on your property. This is a reflection on you. Um, particularly if they've called the ride. So those are things that I do. Um, I, I, I was at an airport in Southern California and had a denial and I decided not only to complain to the, the, the rideshare company, and this is back before we were doing the DOJ stuff. I complained to the airport authority in that for that airport, the public agency that oversees the airport, because the airport gives access to that rideshare company to come on premises and pick up passengers. And I thought, you know, I'd like to control the spigot that pushes money into Uber's pockets. Oh, I said their name. I'm sorry. Um, so I, so I contacted the airport authority and made a big stink with the authority and said, you know, they're breaking the law and by allowing them to come on your premises, so are you. And the airport authority got very aggressive with them on my behalf. And not only did I get reimbursed for my, for my denial for the trip, I also got reimbursed for my time billed as a consultant for the amount of minutes that I stood out there and waited for a replacement ride. Um, which that's pretty hard to do. Um, and, and I did not give them a discount. So, um, so those are things that, you know, you might want to think about is if you're at a big business, a store, a hotel, an airport, think about who might else want to know about this and let them know as well. Um, and tell everybody, tell Uber, Hey, I've, or Lyft or whoever I've copied the business. I've copied the airport authority. I've copied the hotel management. Let them know that you're not keeping this a secret um, because it'll escalate the complaint within their organization, too. Um, so those are just some things that come to mind. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and the Department of Justice complaints, I think, are important because at some point the Department of Justice is going to take notice that this is an issue um, that they have to pay attention to. Thank Ron, you. Can I just that jump was in? a fantastic tip. Yes, <laughs> Becky, sure. please. Um, just on the Lyft um, hotline, mm-hmm. I can actually give you the number, but you can get into it. You can get it through the app now under whether they call it safety, uh, help and safety or, or something mm-hmm. like that in that section. But I can give it now if you want. Why don't you yeah. do that so everyone will have it? And it do we want to do numbers at the end so people can have time to get, yes. their, to get their yeah. technology yeah, we can do ready? And, Good yeah. point. But it will yeah. also show up in the show notes. But everybody get your writing devices ready before the show's <laughs> over, please. <laughs> I want to um, begin to wrap up our presentation so we have plenty of time for questions. But um, there's a couple things I frequently hear from our community is, Well, the ADA has been around 32 years or whatever it's been, you know, this should have been resolved. Well, I remember listening to a Tuesday topic show, maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago. And Chris Bell, who was one of the parties in writing the ADA, made a very powerful statement. And he says, the problem we have with the ADA is we expect it to work for us. Now, I want to give you an analogy and circle back to that. We all know that there are speed signs on streets, on highways, on main thoroughfares, and that's the law. And it doesn't work until an officer enforces it. And, um, you know, we've seen all over the media where there's racial discrimination, the big case in L.A. right now where some horrible things were said by members of the city council. 
And our ADA is there, but it's not automatic. We have to, unfortunately, uh, the majority of the time, enforce the law by filing complaints. So there's a couple things I really want to encourage here. If you have a rideshare tonight, oh, actually, I want to say, I want to say, be ready with your smartphone if you have one when you're expecting the driver to have your recording device on in case you're denied and there's no if, ands, or buts about it. Now you have it recorded. As Ron said, as you know that your driver, and I usually use the three-minute window when you get the three-minute notice. I use Lyft, so I'm hoping that's true on Uber. Um, that if you, if you want to tell them you have a guide dog, and that's an individual choice. It's, there's no right answer to that. I would tell them at that point. Because once you tell them at that point, they're near your desk, they're near where they need to pick you up. And it's, it's, it can be more concluded of a denial based on that message you just sent them. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is Uber and Lyft both have come up with all kinds of ways. I mean, they're going, well, they didn't know it was a guide dog um, and they left. Well, they didn't make any contact with the passenger to say, hey, is that a service animal? So what, is a, what do we need to do? Anytime we face a denial, we need to file a complaint through the app with the rideshare company. That's our first step. Make sure you keep a copy of that complaint. The other thing I'm going to tell you not to do, because this limits your legal, their legal liability, is frequently, in my experience, they will offer to reimburse you for that ride. And um, deny the reimbursement in writing. And they'll go, we already credited you, but there's nothing we can do. Well, this doesn't limit my legal rights. I do not want to claim this money, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, there's no way you can, because once it's in your app, your next ride, it's used. Then the next thing you do is file your complaint with DOJ. And I'm going to tell you, this is the hardest way to go, because you will get, at least for the time being, a letter of denial of taking your case. Keep all of that information, make a folder in your phone or in your computer and keep all of that information. And do this over and over and over and over. One of GDUI's board members, and I don't have the um, permission to use her name. She deals with this daily. She gets these rejection letters daily, but she's continuing to go forward and complain with DOJ. You know, there's no people, some people are going, well, when will DOJ change their mind? I don't have that answer, but I can tell you, they will take this at some point. I can, I can bet you on this. I went through a similar thing with the cruise line and it took eight years, but there was a landmark decision. I had no idea why it was taking eight years until I contacted the DOJ attorney three years later. I'm like, wow, what's going on? Well, it took a long time because it was a, a multi-disability issue with the cruise lines. So there's no immediate gratification, but we are building our case by each of us continuing to file with DOJ. If you need help filing, and, and we can't give out our information, but contact Anthony and he can give it out. Although it's been all over everywhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's been posted on ACB. It's posted on Guide Dog um, Facebook pages. Yep. Um, if you need help filing, we're, 
very happy to help you file. Once you have filed, please send us a copy of your filing. And if your, re if your rejection letter is electronically, please send that to either Becky or myself and we'll share it. It's real important that we keep uh, these so we know how many filings are happening. Now we know we're not getting everybody's filings, but this makes it easier in case at some point um, we wanted to look into any kind of further action are really pushing DOJ and we can say, hey, you guys got 50 complaints. How many more do you need? Um, so it's not an instant answer. The hard thing about this, unlike the taxi industry, is if you called for a taxi, they knew who the driver was. And the companies, in, in my experience, was pretty proactive. And you could get the driver's information as I did in the one lawsuit, the small claims case I filed against a driver and um, had a process server call him. Unfortunately, you know, call, uh, not call him, um, request him for a ride. We can't do that. We can't request Uber and Lyft drivers. So it's harder to sue an individual driver um, because we don't know their information um, to, to be able to serve them. Um, so our only avenue at this point that I'm aware of is continuing to file with the company first and then file with DOJ. I do want to say one thing that um, Tim Elder told me. NFB has been collecting a lot of data on rideshare denials. DOJ won't do anything with it because it's not the individual complaining. So regardless of all the efforts that's been made and all with all the good intent of moving this issue forward, we haven't been able to do it because people aren't filing with the OJ and, it, and people aren't necessarily complaining to the rideshare company. Uh, it's one thing to post it on Facebook or on an email list, and it's another thing to do the legal actions. So at this point, unless Ron or Becky has anything else to add, I would like to open this up for questions. Yep. Marge, just, just one more. Oh, sorry. Becky, did you I, want to I, oh, okay. I just want to say that I did find, and this is the Better News Department, I did find that the form to file at ADA or DOJ.gov or ADA.gov um, was quite accessible and not real hard to fill out. So yep. that was that was that was a pleasant surprise. Yep. So thank you. Becky. So this run just one last kind mm -hmm. of addition to Margie's comment. Um, yeah, I live in the transit industry, and and we had on on we have a call on accessible avenue sponsors called Untangling Transportation, and we talked about on demand paratransit, which of course is the use of ride shares in paratransit last week, and we had a consultant who just did a national study. Uh, across the industry on on-demand paratransit and somebody asked about this issue and her comment was none of the transit agencies we talked to who use these services were aware that this is an issue and what that tells me is is not that it's not an issue it tells me that people are not talking so every when you are in a transit context or paratransit context and these things happen Always, always, always um, tell your transit agency as well, because these companies are trying to get into the public transit industry to provide service. And there's two things that our community is doing that, that are not serving us in the long term. One is we're not telling the transit agencies when we're experiencing these denials. 
The second is some of us who don't experience them or people who don't use service animals are so happy about the, the possibility of getting ride shares into transit that they are forgetting the fact that some of us are, are being having our rights denied. Folks, we need to stand together as a community. If one of us is being denied, we're all being denied. And we can't sell out because it works good for us personally. We have got to stick together on this issue. We have to or we're not going to get anywhere. That's right. Great point, Ron. Thank you for that. So well said. Sheila, do you want to open it up for questions? I do. So if anybody has any questions, if you've got a a short, yes, I've been denied. We don't want the details of your denial, but it would be really interesting to know how many people are dog users that are listening that have had this experience. And if you have complained and filed a complaint, I'm sure Margie, Becky, and Ron would love to know that as well. So Belinda, do we have any hands raised? Oh, we do. Um, Joe (laughs) is up first. Joe, hi, how are you? Joe, go ahead. Joe, you're muted. Don't forget you have to hit the got it button. (laughs) For sure. All right, we can move on to Linda yeah, go to and come the, back to Joe. So yeah, Linda. that'd be great. Hi, Linda. How are you? Participants button drop down. Linda? Oh, Joe's, Joe's unmuted now. Okay. Joe, am I unmuted? Ahead. Yes, you are. Okay, awesome. Um, so I am a guide dog handler. I'm on my second dog. I've um, uh, 12 years of handling a guide dog. Um, I will preface this by saying, uh, my experience with the, um, I'm not using um, the uh, rideshare companies or the transportation providers. I think that's what I'm supposed to be using <laughs> um, uh, as regularly um, in the last couple of months. But in the first half of this year, I think I experienced about 13 denials, including uh, multiple situations where um, on the same ride, uh, I, I, was denied um, more than once on the same ride. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the same way as, as Ron. I'm not going to battle with people. Um, it, it's not worth my time or effort. Um, I, I choose to, I, I, I do explain that. I, 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 I let them know that I'm going to, you know, as soon as you leave, I'm making a phone call. That's going to happen. And you run the risk of possibly losing your job. Um, I, I find, um, the one, the one, the one thing that I sometimes find with, with, uh, Lyft, I, I tend to use Lyft more is while they will send me an email with the initial report, a lot of times I don't get the follow through, but I, I always make sure that I, I get a response from them of what happened with the driver. And usually, usually it's a cookie cut. It's usually it's a cookie cutter response that, you know, they've educated the driver, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Yep. So um, I I have two questions on this. Um, uh, I have no control of like when they, when they usually do that response, that's usually when they respond with, you know, they credit your ride and, you know, it will you know, credit you an additional amount of money or something like that. I have no control of that. I can't stop that. 
so that that actually limits my legal ability to even take action against them no 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 not especially if you write back and you are in your initial thing or your initial complaint to them you could say i am not accepting a refund of my fare or any money from your company in lieu of this discrimination case okay now i will tell you i have a friend who recently got money, wrote back and said, I'm not accepting this. This is not in lieu of me taking any legal actions I may take in the future. Okay. And then go, well, we can't take it away. It's already added. Well, I don't believe that, but that at least covers you. They're, they want to do that to try to cover them up. But you got to clearly say, either in your initial complaint or when they do that, I would encourage you to say it in your initial complaint. Okay. Um, and then if they respond, which they more than likely will, and say to you, well, we've tried to do your ride, then you reiterate that I am not accepting this um, in lieu of possible legal action. That's okay. what you want to say. Okay. Because they're smart. Because most people are going to go, oh, yeah, I got refunded. It was worth filing the complaint. But then you can't take legal action because that's your remedy right there, unless you put it in writing. Yeah, and Margie, if you're wrong, anything to add to that? Um, a 30-second suggestion. Why don't we offline and in the show notes provide people with a paragraph, short, one or two sentences, that they can automatically use and drop into any response to, uh, to a complaint where you know to avoid this issue because i think there's a way to state this that's super simple that basically says in advance any you know we're not asking for money and any money that you give us we will not consider in lieu of uh, in lieu of a of a uh, legal action in this matter so we can we can create that put it in the post show notes and then anybody who needs that can just use it so Perfect. Ron, you'll just mail that to Anthony to put in the post show notes now that this is your assignment. Yeah, let's ha- let's handle logistics <laughs> offline. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Right, Joe, excellent. Joe, we need to move on. But thank you so much for being here and thank you for your question. If we have time, we'll get back to you. So Belinda, okay. who's the next person? Thank you, Joe. I, I do want I do want to say for Joe's case. It's not too late to file with DOJ on those 13 that's, cases. That's, that was my one of my two follow-up questions. So you answered one of them already. Perfect. Perfect. Great. Thank you. All yeah. right. Belinda, next. All right. Next up is Linda. Hi, Linda. I'm unmuted. Hello. Uh, Margie, I'm really ready to take you up on that bet, bet about DOJ um, eventually doing something. Um, because what I heard last week about DOJ is that they have a big criminal complaint. I'll just leave it at that. A very <laughs> big criminal complaint that we probably all heard of regarding, yeah. okay, regarding a famous, famous um, person. Yeah. And they're saying, gee, we can't afford to do this. We let, let, me, let, me, let me jump in yeah. on this yeah. real quick yeah. because so I want right. to keep moving. And well, we I'm, don't, just, I'm just saying yeah. that the, you know, uh, yeah. that, that I am less, um, optimistic that's all i'm, right, I'm going to right. say right and and you know the pro- here's the thing you may be right or you may not be right we won't know if we don't continue we to give comments to the department of justice they they will only react to comments they receive and we what we're doing is building a body of evidence and yes, yes. that is what will either trigger them to act or not act but we won't know until we get there Okay. Um, and I also well, and the add, other thing I want to add in there is that the disability rights section is not dealing with Donald Trump. That's right. Exactly. But the other, the other thing I, I wanted, wanted to add okay. is that there is value in 
you know, we, we talk about posting these things on social media. Um, I have found when, when I read posts or when I've posted my own, the public outrage um, yep. becomes pretty loud. And I think there's value in making this as public as we can um, when yes, it makes I sense agree, to do Becky, that. And I, I agree. And I have a suggestion that, that in, in our various organizations, and, and I appreciate that the organizations, Becky, mm -hmm. you know, are, are, are taking records of, of, of denials. Um, what I would like to see us do are two things. I would like to see us as organizations do use, use some money to, to, um, to film, film as you would any other uh, uh, denial, you know, show what that's like. I would like to show how that is. Somebody who's at the airport, like, you know, who spoke about trying to get, you know, get out of the airport, um, a serious thing, not just, you know, I think I'll take a ride to the mall today. Um, just, you know, to make it clear, um, I'd like to see us also, I have developed a personal technique. I had a really good driver who um, explained to me about Muslim, um, about the Muslim uh, religion and, and dogs, kisses from dogs, mm. and how that would be awful. And, okay, Linda, um, I, we need, we need yeah, to yeah. move no, on. Hold on, I'm getting, so let's do something to show, let's do, again, use our publicity to show um, what we can do to, to, to manage our dogs. Right. And so thank that, you. That we can protect the drivers. And okay, thank you, Linda. I want to address two things there. That's the purpose of us having our phones ready and recording the incident ourselves. Um, the other thing is, and I believe it was GDUI several years ago, many years ago actually, um, went somewhere high up in the Muslim faith or, or belief or whatever religion. And what we were told because we face this with cab drivers. If they're in the public, serving the public, they have to allow you to let your dog in. In their belief, they cannot come into contact with dog saliva. So most of us, I would hope, we don't let our dog's head bob around and we don't let them stand up. We keep them on the floor in control of their head. So there's no excuse for a Muslim driver to deny a service animal. Thank you. Guys, real Lucy. quick, let's just keep this real simple. Um, and then Lucy, um, real simple. They have signed contracts to be on the platform that say they won't deny service animals. Let's not get distracted with yeah. culture and everything else. They have signed a contract to be there. That's it. Yep. All right, Lucy, is anybody in Clubhouse wanting to make a comment or ask a question? No, not at this time. Thanks. Okay, thank you. All right, Belinda, we've got time for maybe one or two. Yeah, about one more. Jane, go ahead. <coughs> Hi, Jane. I yeah, I uh, simply let's see. I need to go directly to the DOJ and the company, right, and make the complaint, complaint right. and stipulate. Mm -mm -mm, I don't want your filthy luger. No, back <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right, I will work on that. The, I have had a lot of trouble with Alamo Regional Transit, which is um, a transportation provider here in San Antonio. So I will do it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Judy had yeah, a comment. Yeah, we had a question in the chat. Yeah we, yeah, we had a question from Ginger asking if reaching out to the media does yes. any difference. And I say absolutely it does. So I'm yes. gonna I'm gonna quickly tell you a story. I had a horrible rideshare denial, a horrible. I was threatened with the taser and everything. 
I called the police. The police came. The, the whole thing was videoed. And I sent it to Lyft. Lyft immediately pulled this driver from the platform. I sent it to I'm, I sent it to Uber because our drivers work for both. Because he wasn't on the Uber platform, they couldn't do anything, but they called them in, they played the video, and they told them it could not happen on their platform. So um, I, I think being active with the media and, and social media is very effective. And especially I have a friend who happens to be gay and on a recent ride, um, he was badgered, called 911. And at the very end, the driver called him a faggot. And I told him he needed to post that everywhere in the LGBTQ plus community. Wow. Well, let's see if um, any of you have any final words Becky, if you want to give out the phone number that you said you were able to access, and let's okay. just give some wrap-up comments here, if you would. Okay, um, the phone number for the Lyft Service Dog Hotline is 844-554-1297. That's 844-554-1297. I just want to encourage, I mean, you know, I guess we can't say it often enough, make it known, make it known where it needs to be known, make it known to the company, make it, make it known to DOJ, make it known to anybody who might care enough to make a difference or to make some noise about it. Um, because we all know how humiliating it is to be denied a ride and how frustrating it is when you're trying to get somewhere. Uh, we're not out joyriding in Ubers. We're, we're trying to get places and get stuff done. So, um, you know, just stay strong and stay loud. And Ron, do you have any final words? I, I think it's mostly all been said. I think just again, what Becky said exactly. And the only other thing I'll add is <laughs> as a community, let's stay together on this issue so that we are all making progress together. We want these services, but we need them for all of us. Margie? Yeah, is this. We, as blind people, have never gotten most things in life, like cane law, access issues, internet issues, without us banding together as a community of blind people, whether it affects us or not, and fighting for And do you have an email that people can send their copies to for their complaints or their stories to get your advice? Mine, Margie and I have, have published our personal emails to have them sent to. And I don't know if we can give that information this way. So we can put it in the show notes. Um, I'm not sure how to deal with that. You can also use connect at accessibleavenue.net. We will forward because that's a commercial email. So feel free. You could use, yeah, you could probably also use advocacy at guidedogusersinc.org. Uh, and that was listed at the beginning yeah. of the show. Yeah, yeah that, that probably would be the perfect one. So right. thank you all so, so much for being here. This has been very informative. In my opinion, I'm not a dog user, but I, I support what you guys are trying to do. And I will always support guide dog users. So thank you so, so much to all of you. Thank and you, Sheila. Thank you. Appreciate thank you, it. Thank you Anthony, thank you. when you hear this. <laughs> yes, Anthony, thank you. That's right.
And and thank and you. I, Byron. I want to thank you, Ron and 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 Becky for joining me in this effort today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And Byron, thank you so much. Belinda and Lucy, thank you so so much. Thank Anthony for allowing me to fill in for him today. This has been very fun. You guys stay safe. And I know that there will be a show next Sunday. So thank you so, so much. Have a wonderful week. You've been listening to Sunday Edition on ACB Media. Stream One, that's American Council of the Blind Media, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes drop every week at 1 p.m. on Sundays, and you can email us at Sunday Edition AC, all one word, Sunday Edition with the letters AC at gmail.com. Let's brunch again together next Sunday.